Hi, everyone, and welcome again to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, the business of government. I'm your host, Adam Jones, and today we have a great discussion about construction, capital projects, and the risk associated and risk mitigation strategies for major capital projects, a very big topic in the business of government. I'm joined today by Weaver partner, Dan Graves. Dan is a partner in our risk advisory services practice and experience CPA with decades of experience. And a lot of that experience is both in government and in construction. Um, and sometimes where those uh, two practices come together. So Dan, thank you very much and welcome back to the business of government. Thanks, Adam. It's great to be back. Dan, we have a flood of federal money around capital projects now, uh, whether those are COVID relief funds, disaster relief funds. Uh, as everyone knows, over the past couple of years, the government has become an increasingly large part of our economy that hits uh, government, both for rebuild efforts, both for um, response to um, all, all manner of disruptions in the economy. There are going to be a lot of agencies that see an influx of new funding. What's the environment around capital projects in the government sector, and how has that changed over, say, the last five or ten years since you have been following construction and capital projects? Well, I mean that's a great, great question. The, the really the posture and the the tone of what we see around all the marketplace now is really this anticipation and and in sectors that are growing and geographic regions that are growing. There's already a construction boom, a lot of development, a lot of uh, obviously, as you mentioned, the federal infrastructure deal, COVID funding. There's a lot of money coming into that now. There's also a lot of, of private money and expansion and growth. Um, I think we'll see coming up a, a lot more of the same, a lot of focus on building, a lot of renovations, especially with the infrastructure deal, uh, upgrading modernizing a lot of the infrastructure. Uh, you'll see a lot of municipalities look at uh, things like what are in the infrastructure deal, public transportation, uh, upgrading railway systems, public transportation. I think you'll also see a lot in the, the affordable housing realm and a lot of government incentives there. And with COVID uh, and the COVID dollars, you, you see a lot of uh, new updates and upgrades to a lot of things like HVAC systems. Uh, there's some really creative ways money's been spent there because it is some it does come with specific restrictions. Um, but I think you'll see a lot more of that. And I think one of the, the biggest uh, overtones to the entire construction expansion really has a lot to do with labor and you're really finding people do the work. There's a lot of projects lined up and you hear a lot of, of terms like shovel ready projects, but the projects may be ready, but finding the labor source and, and the cost of labor are things that are really um, a challenge for a lot of people in that industry right now. Somebody has to be on the other side of the shovel, so to speak. When, when you say creative ways of spending money, obviously your auditor's instincts kick in. Um, what are the biggest risk you've seen associated with public construction projects, either by the government or in increasing numbers of public-private partnerships? So I think one of the biggest risks that you have when you talk about construction in the public sector is uh, what we classify as reputational risk. You have 
a huge court of public opinion. You have ever-present media that is so fast nowadays that um, you have public-facing projects using public funds in this public arena, and you really have your reputation to manage when you start talking about how the dollars are spent, where they're spent, um, you know, really vetting, understanding the projects, looking at the timing of completion, and then ultimately um, how you manage the funds and where the funds are spent. You know, no one else, no one in the government side wants to be on the side of a, uh, a press release that says the project is over budget and behind. I think those are, are some of the biggest risks. So you, you have this major headline risk of your reputation on the line, and then you start rolling into um, that when you start talking about cost, cost overages, um, you know, then then people start getting wafts and the smell of fraud in the air. And, and so th there's always that that in the back of people's minds because the construction in industry does have a reputation of so, you know, things of corruption or um, mismanagement financially. And so uh, that, that headline risk is probably the biggest risk with it built in a lot of those other financial and fraud risks that are, that are packaged as part of that deal. When we talk about risk mitigation, trying to decrease the opportunity for, for fraud, waste and abuse, or just simply mismanagement, there are a lot of, of approaches. And I know your experience, Dan, includes work as both an internal auditor and as a financial auditor, more and more we're seeing government entities be proactive and actually embed internal controls and professional auditors at the beginning of projects sometimes. How does that approach differ from the old school, let's go back and audit the funds that were spent? And um, why has that sort of become a best practice in this day and age? Well, there's a, a lot of good reasons behind that and why people are doing that. One, getting auditors in on the front end um, helps with the financial management uh, for sure. You know, being able to have someone with that financial mindset, that audit mindset, helping you oversee the cost, cost controls, and being in early, such as the, at the pre-planning stage, uh, helps the auditors understand some of the challenges that go along with the project and the reasons behind some of the changes. So you know, as an auditor going in and looking after the fact and trying to look at change orders and change requests and understand how valid that, that change order was in conjunction with the project or what caused that change order, being in in the, the pre-construction meetings and some of the project management meetings is a big help uh, to be able to do that and to help uh, the, the person responsible, the owner of the project, be able to, to have some sort of understanding about why we think it's an appropriate change or what the challenges were that resulted in that change. I think it also um, helps a lot from that cost control perspective. When the other side of the contract, the, the contractors, the builders, the subcontractors know that there's an auditor on the other side of the table, I think it, it's going to help a lot keeping everything above board, uh, helping a lot from a transparency standpoint, knowing that whatever they submit and uh, from a cost perspective uh, is going to help or is going to be monitored. And then on the flip side of that, even from an operational standpoint, having an auditor on early in the project is going to help from things like, did we get the appropriate certifications? Did we get the appropriate inspection? So not from just a cost standpoint, but also from a quality 
an efficiency standpoint going back to help prevent some of those changes from having to happen. Nothing's worse than thinking you've got a project done, then having an inspector come in and say, well, you failed X, Y, and Z, and having an auditor in early stages of that process can help make sure that all the appropriate inspections are done or the, the appropriate installation reviews are done before uh, an inspector comes in so that you don't have those cost overruns and delays. We use the term of art fraud, waste, and abuse a lot, and we tend to um, go to the lowest level, uh, fraud, corruption, malfeasance, whatever. There's also elements of human error in any project. There are elements of mismanagement that don't cross over into fraud. Um, how do you sort it all out? How do you mitigate those missteps from, from staff to avoid the appearance of fraud even when uh, such mistakes are unintentional? Well, I definitely think engaging someone to help audit costs or, or audit projects is, is a, a big step. Um, involving professionals at, at every level, whether it be uh, an engineer to help with inspections, an auditor to help review the process and review the costs, uh, helping uh, what we call share the risk overall. You know, if you're a lot of municipalities and a lot of government institutions um, may have some internal construction folks that can help monitor, help oversee, um, review those projects. Some don't. And, and where you don't or where you need to augment your team, hiring someone uh, at a professional level, a professional uh, contract manager for construction, uh, that's definitely an option. And then having outsourced auditor, auditors, if you don't have them, or outsourced engineers to help review projects, help review installations, um, that's definitely a, a huge step in helping monitor. And then really, you know, allowing them that time to go in and, and understand whether or not a change or an overrun really does constitute fraud. You know, that that's going to go a long way in helping keep that uh, that suspicion of fraud down by engaging others to, to help you share that risk. Let, let's talk about some headlines. They're, they're pretty easy to pick out. I'm going to start with inflation, gas prices supply chain concerns, uh, unrest uh, in political economies around the world. All of these things add up to danger for capital projects um, because you starting a project today, you have no idea what the inflationary uh, consequences will be six months down the road when say you're shovel ready, as you put it. How on earth do you guide government entities engaging in capital projects during times like these? Man, that is such a big challenge nowadays. The, the biggest piece I think that we see a lot of and that I see a lot of is really setting expectations. Being able to set expectations of um, both, you know, administration of, of a government agency, but then also expectations with the public. Uh, it, it obviously depends on the size of the project. If you go bid out a project today and get a bid and a quote, and then when it's ready in two years and you expect that cost to be the same, you're uh, setting yourself up for failure. That is, that is a poor expectation, especially uh, as you mentioned with all the headlines. Uh, there's a couple different things that people are doing to help strategize and, and move around. One is having multi-phase projects. 
especially on very large scale projects, is breaking them out into different sections of budget so that they can um, take a stage one and really get it bid and get quotes on costs for labor, for supplies, get a, a more accurate timing on when goods and services and, and supplies will be available and be that shovel ready. Uh, and then as you get closer to the end of that phase one, really start to think about and talk about when is the right timing to go and get bids and quotes and, and timing for phase two. And that's really, uh, I've seen be pretty effective with a lot of our clients. Uh, as you said, we're, we're in a lot of those pre-construction meetings. So we're hearing the discussions and, and being able to understand what's going on in those meetings about when the work's going to be done. I've also been on the other side and again, tempering expectations, see headlines of, you know, you know, the new project is already, you know, $10 million over cost. Well, it's not $10 million over cost. The quote we got three years ago is now $10 million different than, than what it was three years ago. So it's, it's really how the information is being handled or, or how it's being understood maybe. And breaking those projects down and getting more just-in-time type quotes uh, for the work is, is, you know, becoming a real challenge. You know, one of the other things that uh, a lot of people are discussing in strategies is how to lock in costs. Similar to how people might hedge commodities, um, we hear a lot of discussion about how can we purchase goods and supplies now and warehouse them. So we know what the cost is, it's locked in, we can get the quality, the, the specifications of what we need. Now there's gonna be a different cost associated with it because now we're gonna to have to, to pay to house them and store them. And depending on what those are, we may have to have special special places to store. You can't, can't store sheetrock outside, you know, it's gonna get wet. So um, you, you have to warehouse. Hey, let me write that down. Do not store <laughs> sheetrock outside. Perfect. Yeah. So, it's a different cost structure then, but it's a good way to lock in you know, what your cost is going to be. So we've heard that strategy quite a bit of, and you know, on certain scale projects, it's really a feasible option that should be explored. Before we leave this, just a quick question. Do inflationary times make it easier to hide fraud? I mean, if you think about a standard kickback scheme where you're trying to make a bill a little bit higher than it actually is. Does inflation hide fraud sometimes? Is that something that fraud examiners uh, take into account? Absolutely. Uh, I think it definitely presents a new opportunity. Um, just because it's inflationary doesn't mean it's fraud. Uh, just like we talked about earlier, just because a mishap happens doesn't mean it's fraud. Uh, but it definitely presents a new opportunity and presents uh, a new reason for increased scrutiny. Uh, I mean, you, when you hear about inflation, you hear about gas prices, it could be really easy to, to just bill a little bit extra and that not be really the cost of, of what it, it costs to do or not in agreement with, with the terms of a contract. Um, and so that, that does highlight a new need for scrutiny on projects, especially where we're in an inflationary market and costs are, are expected to go up making sure that you have appropriate oversight over those those financial conditions. Dan, one of the things we have seen increasing attention toward in government is disaster relief. It seems like since the advent of Hurricane Katrina, 
federal and state and municipal funds have flowed more and more into uh, disaster relief, rebuild, restore, uh, and those projects never stop, whether that is hurricanes in Florida, whether that is uh, tornadoes in Texas, like we saw this week, California wildfires. We're seeing increasingly large amounts of uh, government dollars going to disaster relief projects. And I bring that up because it raises a question about risk. When you are replacing something uh, destroyed by what we used to call acts of God, you're doing that in reactive mode. This is not part of a strategic plan or a bond issuance or a, um, a thought out capital project. It is emergency reaction to, you know, rebuild the high school gymnasium that's gone. What kind of, a, does this create additional risk beyond sort of the, a, a capital project in the normal course of business? Yeah, I really do think so. I think that, you know, anytime you get uh, an emphasis on a disaster or where disaster funding comes in, I, I think you've, we've seen it historically. Uh, we, we saw it with relief funds and, you know, new construction dollars related to Katrina. We've all heard those, those fraud uh, opportunities and, and heard instances of exploitation of fraud. And we, we saw the same with COVID relief dollars and, you hear about scams related to those. So I definitely think there's a, a different level of risk and related risks around disaster relief funding, especially when you start talking about construction or, or capital projects of, of what we can do to rebuild. There's always an emphasis on you know, getting people the help they need. And you have to balance that, that goal of helping people and getting them what they need with the risks associated with trying to do that in a very expeditious manner. Um, you know, they're not part of your normal planning process. You, they, they, they don't get a lot of the same attention uh, from maybe personnel a lot of times because that the personnel, you know, it's, it's new. We already have what we plan to do. Now we have these new things that we need to do and are high priority. And do we really have the personnel to do that? Or are we going to have to, can we add personnel or, to help manage and monitor these new projects and these new expenditures? Or are we going to have to do it with the people we have? Um, and which is usually the case, you know, being able to add headcount in a short span of time in order to address a disaster or a scenario that's a, a now scenario is very difficult to do. And so being able to get the right people in the right place and to plan that um it is really it's well known by the people who are are trying to perpetrate a fraud or or trying to scam the system for more money um they know it they it's not a secret and so i definitely think it presents a new level of risk so you you both have sometimes a manpower shortage you also have emergency procurement procedures that may not be as robust in a disaster relief scenario so how do you mitigate against some of those risks in your experience, Dan? So that the shortened procurement cycle and that, that expeditious timing that we talked about is, is a big challenge. I think one of the things is looking at vendors, uh, vendors and suppliers, and making sure that um, with the, the amount of time that you do have trying to 
ensure that you've done your due diligence, making sure that you don't have fly-by-night uh, vendors, fly-by-night contractors who, who say they can do a lot, come in, bill you, and you don't get the, the goods or services that you needed. Also looking at, um, this is something we, we dealt with uh, in the latest pandemic is you, we got a lot of suppliers saying that they could provide uh, personal protection equipment and they really couldn't. And so there was a lot of charges. There was substandard equipment delivered um, at high costs, you know, emergency level costs. And it was, it was a big challenge. So whatever you can do on the front end from a vendor management perspective and a vendor vetting perspective, also um, looking at and making sure that you have disaster contracts prepared ahead of time that allow for cost recovery. Uh, any good contract from a government agency should have an audit clause in it and not being afraid to exercise audit clauses after the fact to make sure that if goods or services are not delivered uh, according to specification that you have a way to, to gain cost recovery. Um, it's still not a great headline, but if, if you say an audit uncovered that we and we were able to recoup any kind of money, it's definitely a much better headline than um, you've lost, you know, hundreds or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on a, on a contract because um, there was fraud. I think, uh, and I think focusing on quality, um, when you're looking at the quality that, that somebody needs a good or service or product, uh, especially, you know, rebuilding, making sure that you have the right controls in place and, and to the extent that you can get the personnel in place to make sure that you're getting the quality. We all know and can expect that in a disaster, costs will be higher. Um, so monitoring that, but also monitoring to get the quality of goods and services that you expected is, I think, uh, a, a really good thing and almost as good as you can do to make sure that whatever you've purchased, construction, new build, renovation, um, any kind of disaster remediation, uh, that you're getting the quality of goods and services that you expected. Dan, we're we're close to the end, and as always, I've really enjoyed our conversation. If if we leave our audience with this, we're entering a new age of government investment in infrastructure. We mentioned it uh, at the at the uh, beginning of the podcast: infrastructure in boards, in in, in boards, in roads, in bridges, uh, airports, uh, stations, ports. When we look back on the next five to 10 years in, in government construction, what do you hope are some of the lessons that we've learned and, um, and how are we best going to emerge serving government in some of these capital projects and endeavors? Well, what I hope to see is that um, the governments have, have looked back and, and people involved in the construction uh, have been able to look back and see you know, what went wrong in the past and, and make steps to improve in the future. Uh, and of course, that's what we all hope for, but really seeing some, some concrete actions. I think uh, moving forward, uh, that people would recognize the missteps of the past and really dedicate some time, dedicate some dollars to making sure that costs, I mean, everything we've talked about is a, is a gentle balance. Um, adding auditors, adding personnel, adding experts to, to review and ensure things are, are 
implemented and constructed or or renovated in the way they're supposed to be done, it, it is a cost. And so we can look back and say, did we do it right? And it was a little bit more expensive or did we do it wrong? And it was a lot more expensive because we're going to have to go back and fix it. Um, you know, that's kind of that old adage that I remember, you know, coaches going through my sports career is if you do it right, you do it light. If you do it wrong, you do it long. Um, and that's, that's just a lesson I think we can take into life and say, you know, it, it may cost us a little bit more, but if we dedicate the resources, the time, the manpower, the dollars to do it right, I think we can, can learn a lot and have things built in the dollar spent, especially public funds in, in a fashion that is good for, for everyone. Uh, it, it's going to keep our, our constituents happy. It's going to keep the, the taxpayers who are, are ultimately funding these projects, um, they're going to get what they need out of it. And it, it's going to keep the municipalities or the, the governments in, in a, a spot where they're doing the most good for the people they serve. So with that, we're going to avoid doing it wrong and doing it long. We're going to wrap up on time. Thank you for that, Dan. I'm, I'm writing that down right now. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Weaver Risk Advisory Partner, Dan Grace, for another great discussion on Weaver's The Business of Government. We thank you for listening in to wherever you find your podcast and look forward to seeing you again next time. I'm Adam Jones.